You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Good day. Hello, everyone. I am Renee Steelman, the host of She Became Visible. Thank you so much for joining me today. It is a beautiful fall day in Utah, and we are enjoying the ability to actually have seasons. That's one of the things that we gave up when we moved to Arizona. And um, they have seasons. It's called a little bit cooler and really hot. I don't know if those are actual seasons, but that's kind of what they have in Arizona. And we moved there from the Pacific Northwest and they have a fabulous fall. And I love their spring and their summer. Uh, Their summer is a little wet for me. And the winter is a little bit of an extension of fall without the pretty colors and more rain. So I don't know. I'm really enjoying the beautiful colors here in Utah. And I hope all of you are enjoying fall wherever you are. So let's get into our discussion today. We are going to be talking about cognitive dissonance today. And let me pull up my slides again, because I wanted to it's one of those things that I've never heard of. I actually never even thought that trying to control two different ideas in my mind was something that could cause me a lot of stress, um, depression. I didn't really think of it as being that traumatic of a thought process, but come to find out it actually really is. And let me, uh, let me show you a little bit here. Let me, Oh, hello. Come back. Come back. Where'd you go? All right. So let's go a little bit to um, what actually is cognitive dissonance. Now, the dread of conflicting thoughts. I thought, you know, that's another way of talking about cognitive dissonance because people actually, it's stressful and it's a little bit anxiety causing for people to have these thoughts in their head that they thought everything was going this direction and suddenly it's going another direction and trying to make sense out of that is really, really hard. So um, I like this quote though. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Alexander Campbell, but he was an organizer of the Campbellite church and Sidney Rigdon actually came from the Campbellite church. And but this is a quote that he said, which I really liked. He who sets out to find signs and omens will find enough of them. He that expects visits from angels will find them as abundant as he who in the age of witchcraft found a witch in every unseemly old woman. I love that quote, because isn't it true? It's like with cognitive dissonance, 
I hear people say, and I'm going to reference back to the Faith Restore conference that I went to a couple of weeks ago. People are almost indoctrinated to the idea that when they have a thought, that this thought that they have is some kind of a Holy Ghost revelation. It can't just be an idea that comes into their head or a remembering process. Oh, that's right. I forgot I put my keys on uh, that back table in the back room. It's not never that. It never can be that. It always has to be some huge religious experience. And so often in the faith conference, I heard people say, and then I heard this voice and this voice in my head said, don't go there with that person. Uh, Jared Halverson made that. I heard this voice very distinctly saying, don't give that man a blessing. And I was like, wow, you are so freaking special that God is talking to you right now. But it's never just, you know what? I was just thinking, dang, we should go on a hike. It's always, you know what? The spirit told me we need to go on a hike. And then when it doesn't work out, when somebody falls off a cliff or gets severely hurt on the hike, it's like, oh, that must have been that I'm, I was not listening to the Holy Spirit. That must have just been Satan or what else, you know? So there's always that get out of jail free card, right? So anyway, so that's kind of what I, I really like that quote. I thought that was great. But let's talk a little bit about cognitive dissonance. So, um, oh, nope, wait, we're going to go back. Let's go back. Okay, we're going to be, I'm going to be using a presentation that was given by Sherry Dew in May of this year, in 2023. It was at Women's Conference. And she's going through, she's talking about words and the importance of words. Now, she is the director. I don't remember her official title, but she is the um, head of um, Deseret Books. And I believe she edits a lot of books. I believe she's written some books. Um, I don't know that for sure, so you can correct me. But um, she is in charge of Deseret Books. She's the uh, big CEO or whatever. And so she's giving this woman's conference in May of 2023. And her main focus is words. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. Cognitive dissonance is a conflict with either behavior or words that we've heard that we thought this was true, but that doesn't seem to be true. And so that's kind of what we're talking about today. So let's let's get into it. Um, I have, oh dang, did I put her slide up? Let me see if I put her slide up because I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to um, I found this really, oh, I didn't. Let me see if I can grab her. I've already got quite a few. I'm going to let me get rid of this get rid of that one because we don't need that one. And I'm going to see if I can put in this um, a life coach that I saw. And I really liked what she had to say about cognitive dissonance. So let's go. I think I wasn't able to put her up there because I had too many slides. So let's add her. Let's see where we added her. Where did you go? Where did we stick? All right, let's go here. In this video, you're going to learn about cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when we have a gap between what we believe is right and what we're doing. That, that creates dissonance in our lives. 
This means that we believe one thing, but we're acting on something else. Dissonance feels like having one foot on one boat and the other foot on another boat. As the two boats, as our actions and our beliefs drift further apart, the more uncomfortable we get. When we have unresolved gaps between our thoughts and our actions, we feel intensely uncomfortable. You can do all the coping and the meditation and the self-care that you can handle, but if you can't figure out cognitive dissonance, you're just not gonna feel good. There is no substitute for integrity when it comes to peace of mind. So for example, Jenny knows that she should exercise more. It's not that she's obese or anything, but her body feels slow and sluggish, and she gets out of breath when she's walking up a flight of stairs. She knows that she would feel better if she worked out. And each day that she doesn't exercise, she feels a tinge of disappointment and guilt. Now, dissonance makes us feel bad. Dissonance makes us feel unsettled or guilty or uncertain. Dissonance makes us feel fake or bad about ourselves. And this feeling isn't just in our minds, it creates measurable physical tension. And this isn't a bad thing, right? Discomfort can help us be motivated to change. This is strongest when it has to do with a belief about ourselves. So for example, the thought, you know, I value kindness, paired with the action, oh, I just punched someone in the face, is gonna bring on some pretty strong feelings of regret and guilt and disappointment. Okay, so her name is Emma. And I really encourage you to look her up on YouTube. Um, I'll put a link somewhere at, that links you to her. She has um, a podcast and I believe she's on a lot of other social medias, but I just really like the way she presents. And sometimes that makes a difference. It's sometimes the podcast that we listen to or the YouTubes that we listen to, it's really not a matter of the information. It's a matter of uh, a personal choice. And I like her presentation. I like her voice. I like a lot of things that she does. And she and I just really liked her. Now, let me see if um, I can. I'm going to see. I might see. I've got so many slides up there that it's not allowing me to put all of the ones that I wanted to up at the same time. So it means I have to find them one at a time. So let me find the other clip that I made with Emma because I really liked what she had. Oh, go back. I liked what she had to say about cognitive dissonance. And it's got to be up here closer to the top because never mind. All right. All right, we'll let it go. Anyway, I think she explained it. And what I like what she said was she said, you can pray, you can meditate, you can do all of these things. But unless you bring this division into some kind of a solution, you're going to be living with this dissonance. And I think that is more true when she she gave as an example, the thought that someone should exercise. Let's say um, you know, oh, I know I should exercise more. My doctor said I needed to exercise more. Um, but I don't really like to exercise. And, you know, it makes me sore afterwards. And and it, every day you've got that constant thing in your head where you should do this. You either have to start exercising or you need to come to the conclusion that um, you don't care, that I don't care if exercise is good for me. I'm not going to do it anymore. And then you can move on. That's how you resolve cognitive dissonance is coming to some kind of solution. Now, when you're talking about a fundamental or high demand religion, it's even worse. The conflict in your mind is even worse because it's not just about sacrificing 
let's say, you know, the idea that you should be exercising or another example that she gave gave was she knows, let's say you are a smoker and you know that smoking is bad for you, but you really enjoy it. So you either come to the conclusion that you don't think it's that bad for you, or maybe it's bad for some people, but it's not that, that bad for me. And I'm just going to continue to do that there in when you've got a fundamental, re, fundamental religion involved, it's not a matter of you making a choice. Other people have made choices for you and they have instructed you or indoctrinated you to believe that their doctrine or their beliefs are the correct ones. So it's a matter of you fighting against what you have been indoctrinated to believe is the truth with a gut feeling that something's off here. I, I don't know if I if I really agree with that. So I don't know. We're this isn't going to be a heavy discussion, but let's talk a little bit. So I'm going to use Sherry Dew's presentation that she gave um, at this women's conference to maybe show a little bit of some cognitive dissonance that you might have or that you may be struggling with if you have started to get some little twinges as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Are you starting to go, gosh, that doesn't seem right, but they told me it was right. And I'm not supposed to question the authorities. And I don't know. And so that's where it's a little bit deeper than just, you know, thinking about whether you should be exercising or not. So let's watch a little bit. Let's let's get into the presentation that Sherry had. And I have to tell you, it's a very enlightening or awakening thing to look back at people that you once put on a pedestal, that you once admired so deeply, and that now you're looking at them completely differently. And I have absolutely zero power to read someone's mind. I cannot say what someone's intentions are. So I cannot accuse someone of believing a certain way so that they can keep their job or that so that they can stay, um, you know, um, in a family, they can be included in family activities. So they're staying or, or let's say they're a doctor or a dentist or, and they need to keep up this appearance of um, active belief in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints so they can keep their job. I'm not going to judge anyone for what their motivations are for staying in the church, but it's just interesting to see people that I used, as I say, used to put up on a pedestal. And now I look at and I go, I don't think she has cognitive dissonance. I don't think she's conflicted at all with her beliefs. Um, but I kind of look at her now and go, oh, wow, okay, this is how you were indoctrinated. And, and Sherry and I are the same age, which was startling because, you know, when you're when you have someone with that much authority, power, uh, place in the church, I always looked up to her. I never looked at her as an equal in any way. And now I find out we're exactly the same age. And so it's like, wow, it's kind of like when I was in the military and I was going through boot camp and my company commander, uh, at this time, you know, I was 18 years old. My company commander, and looking back now, probably was 23. But because she was a person of authority, I looked up to her and didn't even question how old she was or how much life she had spent in the Navy. I just looked at her as she she's she knows everything. She's my commander. She's telling me what to do. So anyway, it's kind of how I look at Sherry. But anyway, so let's let's bring Sherry. What on. happens to our hearts and minds when we consume ours? Days, years of words 
with most of them coming from those who know nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, I find that very interesting because whose definition is it for those who know nothing about Jesus Christ? If we consume, and now she's referencing watching movies, um, social media, she, she lists all of them. She'll go through Hulu, Instagram, TikTok. You know, she lists all these things. Why would we spend hours listening to people that know nothing about Jesus Christ? Well, I wanted to make a much, I, I could have spent hours making more slides because once you've gone down the rabbit hole of deconstruction, you start listening to outside voices. You start listening to people like Bart Ehrman and um, Elise Pagel and um, Elaine Pagel rather. And these are people, these are scholars. These are people who have studied the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the original papyra that was found in translations. And so they know the context behind the words that we consider the words of Jesus Christ or what we consider scripture, or even in the telling of who Jesus Christ was, what his life was like. These are people that know historical facts about where the world was, where was the Middle East at this time. And so I find it interesting that you have someone who is, oh, crud, my computer is saying, would you, would you, were you planning on plugging me in at all? I'm glad your computer keeps you up and going. I've got to plug my computer in or I'm going to lose you guys. And that would be awful. There we go. And we're back. Okay. Thank you, computer. Thank you for telling me to plug my computer. Anyway, so I, I find that interesting. You know, um, Russell Nelson, I'm not saying he's stupid by any means. The man's a cardiac surgeon and a renowned cardiac surgeon. He has a specialty in life that she, he spent in learning. And it was not theology. It was not Hebrew. It was not Greek. It was not ancient Egyptian, Middle Eastern, Israeli studies. Okay. He's a cardiologist. So um, then you've got Dallin Oaks, who's a lawyer. And then you've got Henry B. Eyring, Eyring, who was a scientist. I think, I know his dad was a scientist. I'm not exactly sure what his, his um, business experience was, but regardless, he's not a theologian. So I find that interesting that Sherry is telling us, don't listen to people that um, that don't know about Jesus Christ. I'm like, well, here's the thing. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Now, the next slide is I want to talk a little bit about um, kind of how my awakening happened. Very little new that wasn't out there for 30, 40 years ago. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is releasing a new set of never-before-seen manuscripts of the Book of Mormon. And it includes images of the seer stone, which was used to translate the book. Today, you can view it for yourself. Good for Utah's Brian Carlson has the story. For the first time after nearly 200 years, people can view a very important piece of LDS church history. This is what's called the Seer Stone. Before today, only a select group of people have ever seen it. Back in the 1820s, church founder Joseph Smith likely used it to translate the book. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you know what I mean? It's awfully difficult. And this. It's awfully difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. When I found out about the seer stone, it blew my mind. 
and it blew my belief because it had been hidden, as this news reporter said. This info and now don't don't even try to pull this. Oh, 1967, they published it in the instant. No, no, I'm not even going to go there because when you are in an organization. I'm not going to use the C word, but when you are in an organization that completely monopolizes your time and your thoughts and your lifestyle and your um, and even your choice of roles in the world, when you have when you belong to an organization that controls what you will be, who you will be, what you will eat, who you will associate with, what you will read, what you will watch, who you will listen to. That that whole uh, we published it in the friend and I don't know, 1963 in the back of it with was hidden behind a picture of just I don't know, whatever excuse it is that they give. No, I'm sorry. Unless you stand at the pulpit at general conference broadcasting to the world this information, do not say we've always told you that that's called gaslighting people. So, um, yeah, sometimes it's hard to separate the past from the present. But when I found out about the seer stone, I was like, what else have you been lying about? What else don't I know? And that's kind of what happens. So there is a, an example of cognitive, cognitive dissonance because I believed the story. I believed that an angel appeared to Joseph Smith. Now, I like the reference that I forget who it was, but someone said, did anybody ever think about the fact that Joseph Smith lived in a very small a house with, I don't know, four or five siblings, mom and dad, they're all living in the same room. And yet an angel appeared to Joseph Smith and nobody else woke up. Nobody else saw it. This whole, my whole room lit up like noonday sun idea was like, well, it didn't wake anybody else up where they put into a coma. And I remember when someone said that and I thought there again, there's an example of cognitive dissonance because I was like, I never thought about that, you know, because we live in mod modernity. We think, oh, Joseph Smith was up in the uh, third bedroom by himself and this angel appeared and everybody else was asleep in the house and they didn't know he lived in like a cabin, you know. And so the idea that this happened and nobody else saw it or heard it or 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 he didn't like wake up and scream because there was an angel in his room never even occurred to me. I just went sailing along. Yeah. OK. The angel appeared. Uh huh. And then when then Oh, OK. That makes it. And then gold plates. All right. And you have a picture. You have a picture because there's a picture of Joseph Smith with gold plates that. Oh, well, that verifies it. I mean, it was not a photo, but it was the picture that was sanctioned by the church. Right. So you're like, yeah, yeah, that. that OK, that makes sense. So I find out about this hat, this rock and a hat. What the heck? Come on. Blew my mind. And, and here's the cognitive dissonance. It started me down the rabbit hole, but just like a lot of other people, especially people my age, um, Martine Smith and I have become good friends and everything she says, I'm like, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, me too. We're exactly the same age and same age as Terry do. And so it's interesting that you, you just brush things off. You just believe things until you believe, well, okay, 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 well, okay, I'll, I'll just go with that. But the Book of Mormon is still true. And uh, and uh, Joseph Smith was still a prophet, but okay, okay. And then you get a little bit further and you're like, yeah, that doesn't make sense either, right? So, all right. So that's kind of where we're at. And I, you guys, I can't, I can't go 
without showing you this. Yes, it will. <laughs> and in terms of haunting you, I say, boo. <laughs> That's pretty scary. That's pretty, but I don't think I'm going to give that up. Even when October is over, I think I'm going to keep that forever because I love it. It's a side of Dallin Oaks that you don't see very often. And it's just kind of appropriate, right? So let's look at another example of what Sherry has to say to all of us, women at Women's Conference. I spent much of my life dealing with words. I've had the privilege of being the publisher for many of the most articulate, most faithful minds in our culture. And I've learned two things from this. First, that words are powerful. And second, that the Lord cares about words. And he always has. Perhaps in part because of these words. Quote, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Close quote. One of the names of Jesus Christ is the Word. Okay. You guys, I know where you're going because this is exactly where I was going. I was going to find the clip of um, Holland saying, maybe we need a little bit more musket fire because there were so many people that defended that statement. Everyone knows where he was going with that. Obviously, Jeffrey Holland was not literally suggesting that people go pick up guns and go to the streets. I know that. Everyone knows that. But it's the idea, it's the meaning behind those words that everyone understood. And words do make a difference. And so I wanted to, I wasn't going, I, I don't know. I just thought I don't have time. I'm not going to bring that up. But let me show you someone else's words. Sorry, even food offends God. I love that. <laughs> if you, okay, I know that's a clip. But this whole idea that there is this man, and now this is the prophet. This is the man that Sherry Dew is saying if you want to hear the words of God, you need to listen to this man. Okay. He's saying that there is some, and I have, I have King Noah. That's who I have envisioned um, sitting on this throne up there. And he's like, oh, you're eating a frosted cookie from Swig again. I am offended. Did you not read section 89 of the book of the, uh, Doctrine and Covenants. Did you not read my word of wisdom? And I know it doesn't say don't eat swig or don't drink Diet Coke or maybe don't make mint brownies a daily, um, something that you daily eat. I know it doesn't say that, but we're supposed to be the healthiest people in the nation, right? We're supposed to be the people that are going to walk back to Missouri. I don't think they teach that anymore, cognitive dissonance, but we're supposed to be the example. And we're probably... I don't know where someone I've actually tried to look this up as far as um, obesity levels in the United States or heart disease or cancer. Uh, there's so many of these things that are actually some of them are just genetic. Some of them are just environmental that we have no control over. Other things we have control over heart disease unless you've got a genetic issues, a lot of times heart disease can be controlled by our diet. So we have a word of wisdom. And then there's the Seventh-day Adventists. They have a word of wisdom. They are actually the healthiest people. I have read studies. I think Loma Linda, California has 
the in, the uh, the the people that live in that area that are members of this um, Seventh Day Adventist are the healthiest people in the nation. So, but I love that clip that Jesus that clip that Jesus is just sitting up there and he's like, "What? How dare you? I'm so offended." I mean, he's clutching his pearls, right? So I love that. But let's talk about words. Let's talk about teachings. And I want to specifically talk about this idea. And here's a big cognitive dissonance thought. This idea that we have God and then we have Satan. And both of these men are gods and they are both powerful. And that we as humans on earth are in a constant battle with these two beings that are constantly putting thoughts in our head, uh, enticing us to do things. God is enticing us to do good things, serve one another, love one another. Satan is enticing us to hate and to, to um, abuse our bodies. And, and it's just this idea that there are literal two gods. And, and I, again, I just went through and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, but never really, I never really let that take over that I thought that something that had come into my head was being put there by an outside being. And that's what I think is important. So let's talk a little bit about Satan. Another thing Kimball does in his book is to put the fear of Satan deep within your psyche and your heart. And that's why when I grew up in the church, a lot of people had this deep seated fear of Satan still probably there in the church to some extent uh, so Kimball talks about the battle with Satan pictured above uh, aka Lucifer in the temple ceremony that's what he looked like when I went through he's probably not in there anymore he's just a man in some robes or maybe now in a suit. All right, so Kimball talks about the battle with Satan. What does he say? He says Satan is clever. He's highly trained. He has thousands of years of experience, is superbly efficient, determined, and has superior powers compared to man. Wow. <laughs> I'm scared, very scared of Satan. I'm scared that I can't win the battle against Satan. He's too clever. He has too much experience, thousands of years. He has superpowers. How am I supposed to? Okay, so that's a clip from a YouTube channel. And I will put a link to his channel. That's Kurt. And Kurt does a full YouTube, I think can't remember if it goes about two hours, but he's especially talking about the book Miracle of Forgiveness that was written by Spencer W. Kimball, who I believe that at the time that he wrote the book was an apostle, but he eventually became the prophet. And that book, when it came out in the 70s, was passed out like candy. I mean, every bishop, every stake president, everybody was giving everybody this book. And it's funny because I did read that book. I read that book in like 1973 and I 
and this this is what makes it makes me realize how why I didn't really suffer with cognitive dissonance because I am definitely just a go along to get along person and I don't question a lot I I really wasn't into that maturity level until I was probably in my late 40s before my mind completely you know evolved and I was able to start going wait, 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 wait. That doesn't make sense. And I started questioning things. Up until then, I just kind of did what I was told to do and it worked, right? I had a pretty great childhood considering and the church was a great social experience for me. And I could really see, I mean, I was 12 years old when I joined the church. My family, my father, my biological father was not a member. His family, they were not members of the church. They drank, they played poker at all the family gatherings. They smoked and they uh, swore every once in a while. And they were the most wonderful people, wonderful people, absolutely amazing people, loving, giving people. And so I don't know, it just wasn't that big of a thing that I had to struggle with. And so, um, but when I went through the temple at 20, this was the Satan. This was the man that, um, golly, what was his name? Oh my gosh, I know his name, but you all know his name. And he was the best. I loved him as Satan. He was he was the best. When they replaced the movie, they made another Adam and Eve and another Satan. I was like, no, no, that's no. You're not good. And this this man that played that played Satan when I went to the temple, he was a Shakespearean actor, you know. So he just had a persona. But I I do remember talk about cognitive dissonance. I remember going to the temple, going, okay, but it's like he understands the plan. Why does he understand that? No, you won't die. Your eyes will be open, and you will see the difference between right and wrong. I'm like. Okay, that's a good thing. That's I think that's a pretty good thing. And yet he was the bad guy. And and then and then at some point he persuaded Eve to go against God's law, but yet because of her action, they were able to leave the garden of Eden and they were able to create and the world began and we knew the difference between good and evil and we could come down and get our bodies. And the whole plan of salvation was in us leaving the garden of Eden, which meant Eve had to sin. Now, if you're not a member of the church and you're listening to this, first of all, thank you. That's amazing. <laughs> but second of all, this is seriously what was taught in the temple. That is huge cognitive dissonance. It's like, but he's telling the truth and God is lying. God is saying that you will die. Satan is saying, you're not going to die. Calm down. You're just going to realize the difference between good and evil. So that's a good thing. And we're like, okay, but if we do God's way and then, and why, how sneaky is God? Sneaky as all get out. It's like, well, <laughs> we'll just tell them that they'll die so they won't eat it, but we want them to eat it. I don't like that idea. Obviously, I left the church because I don't like people lying to me. So anyway, perfect example. And I, I, this whole thing with Satan having so much power, more power than God, if that's not cognitive dissonance, I don't know what is. Let's talk about that. Starts with the conflict or a guilt and it leads to the patient's delusions that his body has been invaded by some alien intelligence uh, uh, spirit if you will
There it is, people. There it is. Isn't that what we say? That your body has almost been inhabited by an evil spirit. Now, do you, you all recognize that, right? It is the 50th anniversary of the um, Exorcist. And um, th so this movie came out in 1973, American supernatural horror film directed by William Friedkin from a screenplay by William Peter Blat Blat Blatty? Blatty, based on his 1971 novel of the same name. The film stars Ellen Burstein, Max von Sydow, Jason Miller, and Linda Blair. The story follows the demonic possession of a young girl and her mother's attempt to rescue her through an exorcism by two Catholic priests. Now, this movie got pretty good reviews. If you are fans of Mormon land, they interviewed a professor of film from the University of Utah a couple of weeks ago, and they were showing The Exorcist downtown Salt Lake somewhere. And he talked about how important this movie was and actually how it kind of set a new genre for movies and, and listen to some of the reviews. Let's see if I can read this. Uh, besides the performances, which are uniformly strong, what's so terrific about The Exorcist is how it's in no hurry to get to the meat of its horror. Unlike today's horror movies, it isn't exploitive. It, it's, it's a it's about its characters. And this is a review from the Ganger, Banger Daily News. And then the BBC says, there is no doubt this is a traumatic film, but whether or not you enjoy it, it will depend on what you're looking for. And I thought that was very interesting. So anyway, but so The Exorcist comes out and it's about being possessed by the devil. Well, this is the same belief that the church is teaching, basically. And... Um, I just I just thought that was was kind of kind of interesting. So look at now why do I have this part on here? This I love this too. Conflict or a guilt and it leads to the patient's delusions that his body has been starts with a conflict or a guilt. And that isn't that basically what we're taught? You're sorry, Jesus Christ, 88 doctors and all you can tell me was all of your bullshit is Okay. I, I love that part because as you, as I've said before in some of my podcasts, um, our youngest son was severely disabled and I dealt with a lot of doctors. And when she said, yeah, 88 doctors and all you could come up with was, you know, blah, blah, blah. I thought, oh, that's, isn't that just the truth? You know, here's a mother. They're telling her that her daughter has you know, mental problems, that she's suffering from schizophrenia, that she has depression. And she's like, I know my daughter. I know what's going on here. So I I thought, oh my gosh, that I just, I might, I might end up actually saving that one as well, because I kind of, kind of really related to that. So let me go. I want to go and find, I get to add some more now. So let's go to 40.4. All right, let's look at this one. No doubt flattery helped create the mists of darkness Lehi saw in his vision of the tree of life. Beware of those who tell you what you want to hear. Beware of those that tell you what you want to hear. Let's talk about flattery. Who tells us what we want to hear? Let's look at this. Hmm. Why do dignitaries from around the world feel drawn to prophets 
seers and revelators? Why do we feel something unique when President Russell M. Nelson, President Dallin H. Oaks, President Henry B. Eyring, and any member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles speaks or walks into the room? It is because they are not like any other leaders on earth. They have been ordained as special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. And according to the prophet Joseph Smith, they possess all the keys that ever were or that can be conferred upon mortal man. It is the presence of these restored priesthood keys. Okay, let me go back because this is what she says first. No doubt flattery helped create the mists of darkness Lehi saw in his vision of the tree of life. Beware of those who tell you what you want to hear. Okay, and then she goes on to talk about um, how these men, you know, we stand up, we feel differently when they walk into the room. Why do we feel differently? Because these are men of God. And when I know Russell Nelson just got some award that was, I swear, bought and paid for. Um, he's being compared to Nelson Mandela. I mean, come on. The flattery of the whole, I should have found the clips with David Bednar standing up and nobody else is allowed to stand up or the, the clip maybe many of you have seen where I believe it was David Bednar. Can't remember, but he was visiting. He was in a foreign country that they don't know the American culture. And so the they were all sitting in the chapel in a steakhouse and he walks in. They, they're they like, great, he's here. I can't wait to hear what he's going to say. And they actually, the uh, the men that were with this uh, general authority, I think it was Bednar, they were like, stand up, stand up, stand up. And it's like, wow, you want to talk about flattery? Let's talk about flattery. Pretty amazing. It's about profits. I declare without reservation that the most important words being spoken on earth today are those from prophets, seers, and revelators. Some of their words are to worldwide congregations and others to an audience of one or two, but their words always have power. During a recent meeting with President Nelson, I had a chance to scan an extensive document that lists the dignitaries with whom he has met since becoming president of the church. It was an impressive list of ambassadors, religious leaders, and much more. I asked the president how many on the list he had actually invited to come and meet with him. And he said, none of them. Each of these individuals requested an audience. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. He did not invite any of those dignitaries. They contacted him. That's not flattery. That's that kind of indoctrination that, that Sherry is putting into the minds of the women that were attending that conference. That is telling us who these people are. It is elevating these people to a higher level than we are. How dare we think we can use our own minds and think through things ourselves? These men have got it all figured out. And I want to show you an example of that. And this is a hard one for me, and I'll tell you why afterwards. Until 1978, no person of color attained priesthood in your church. Yeah. Why it took so long time to overcome the racism? 
I don't know. I don't know. I can only say that. But it's we're we're it's here now. We are carrying on a very substantial work in Africa, for instance. We're carrying on a very substantial work in Brazil. We're working among these people. We're developing them. Uh, we've had them among the leadership of the church. And they're able, they do a great work, and we love them and appreciate them and respect them and are trying to help them. <laughs> now that was in 2002. So what, 21 years ago? My, my, how things have changed. Yeah, we're helping them. We're going to help them develop. And for him as a prophet, as Sherry said, um, let me go back and see, is this the one? Let me go back and see if she- It's about prophets. I declare without reservation that the most important words being spoken on earth today are those from prophets, seers, and revelators. Now, again, that talk was given this year. So 21 years after um, this talk by Gordon B. Hinckley. But those that was the same indoctrination that I received. And it's one of the hardest things when you talk about cognitive dissonance, one of the hardest things has been listening and finding out more facts about Gordon B. Hinckley. Um, I, I know that Gordon B. Hinckley was in the first presidency under Ezra Jeff Benson, Spencer W. Kimball. Um, now I could be wrong. At least three. Ezra Jeff Benson's um, Monson. No, he was dead. Okay, so yeah, it was Ezra Jeff Benson, Spencer Kimball, and um, I can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But he was he was under three presidencies. And all of these men, as they age, David O. McKay, maybe it was David O. McKay, Ezra Jeff Benson, and Spencer W. Kimball. Where did Joseph Fielding Smith come in through there? I don't know. Anyway, these men, as they aged, their mental health was failing. And Monson was carrying the load. And he was having to do a lot of stuff and also put on the facade that everything is fine in Zion. And so I admire him for that. And, and I think he probably struggled a lot. And I would not be surprised if he was not on his knees constantly asking for direction and where he should go. He also, his emphasis in life was on the media and he knew how to use the media and he wanted to use the media to expand the missionary work for the church. And so, but as I learned more things and I found out about the Mark Hoffman deal and read about um, David, o when I read David O. McKay's biography by Gregory Prince, and I just found out about the things that were covered up, just hidden. And with the Mark Hoffman case, you know, the money that was given, and I, think Steve Christensen, who was one of the victims of Mark Hoffman, he was actually killed by one of the bombs. I think he was brought in somehow to finance purchasing some documents from Mark Hoffman by the church. The church uses outside organizations to do their dirty work so that it can't be traced back to them. Unfortunately, in this day and age, I think that's getting more and more difficult to do. But there was a gentleman and I 
I think it was Christensen up in Canada. And they were like, look, if you could buy these documents for us, then they can't tie it back to us. But but the church did buy, go ahead and pay some and then just hid them away. That's not an easy thing to try to make sense out of when you're going through this. That was a huge thing for me was I just, let me tell you why. And I think I may have mentioned this before. Gordon B. Hinckley came and spoke to our little stake in Japan when I was stationed in Japan and we had driven up to Tokyo and they were announcing the um, that they were going to build a temple in Tokyo and Gordon B. Hinckley came and he spoke to our little stake. And I just, I went up to him and, and then we were some, Oh, this was okay. This, yes, this was, um, he came and spoke to our stake and I went up and shook his hand. And then, um, then they came and announced the, that they were going to build a temple in Tokyo. And then I got, and then I wrote him a letter and I said, I really enjoyed meeting you. I'm wondering if you would marry my husband and I, we are getting married in the Salt Lake temple in November, 1974. Would you be available to marry us now? Those were the good old days when you could do things like that. Can you imagine? I can't imagine that I did that. But hey, I was 19. And and he had also spoken to my husband when he was on his mission in Indiana. And he really felt a connection with Gordon Hinckley. Well, my husband's mission president was Mark Benson, who was Ezra Taft Benson's son. So he was part of the whole dynasty, right? So there was this connection. So I wrote a letter and he said, sure. I'd love to. So we were married in the Salt Lake Temple by Gordon B. Hinckley. Come on. Mark Benson was there because my husband invited him, being his ex-mission president. And But we didn't really have any idea of the, the whole dynastic thing. We were just, these are just wonderful men that we really loved. And we were just honored, you know. So, I mean, he walked across the street on a nice afternoon, on a Friday afternoon, on November 15th, 1974, and said, yeah, whatever, I can do that. I mean, can you imagine? So I've always had this place in my heart with for Gordon B. Hinckley. And I've, but now I've watched these things and I still love him. I still love him and I don't see any malice. I see a man struggling with this whole idea of how do I keep this thing going? And I think he made bad choices. Now, this is the same understanding that people give to Joseph Smith. They say he's a man, he was just doing the best he can, but I don't see the similarities there because this is a man that purposely did things uh, and deceived people and took their money and Gordon Hinckley wasn't doing that. So anyway, but that's a hard thing for me to watch. So I think, let me see if that's the end of my slides. I believe it is. And so that was the main things that I wanted to talk about today was the idea of cognitive dissonance, the idea that you can come to some conclusion. And let me just go in to say, again, I'm not a life coach. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. But and I do believe that every person is given different personality. I'm a big believer in the Enneagrams, right? And I do believe you can find these personality similarities in the Enneagrams. And I just don't have that kind of personality. So for me, it wasn't a matter of being physically in or mentally out. Um, now, again, my situation is 100% different than most other people's situation. It was also right during COVID. 
and we had moved to a uh, to Arizona. Um, we weren't really entrenched into the ward that we were in. There wasn't a huge tie. We had left a lot of really great people. Uh, I don't know what I would have done. I honestly don't know what I would have done if I would have found out that information while we were still living in Washington State or in Oregon, where we had spent almost 50 years. So I don't know. I don't know. But it, everything fell into place for me. So leaving once I found this information, it was a matter of how do I solve this cognitive dissonance that's in my mind. And for me, it was I'm not going to belong to an organization that lies to people and connives them into doing things for the corporation and not for the betterment of their their self or their families. I choose to leave. And that way I didn't have that constant battle. So that's kind of how I dealt with it. And I know I would love to hear from from you how you have settled this in your mind, how you have come to some kind of peaceful accord in your mind to be able to to live with the idea that you're either in an organization that you don't believe in or that you partially believe in it and therefore that's what you know maybe it's back to book of mormon i don't know if all of these people i know people who are having a hard time with polygamy their cognitive dissonance is to accept that joseph smith was a prophet but all of the other prophets from that point on are evil men in conspiracy with Satan. That's how they've solved their thing. Now, they are still calling themselves active believing members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They are still attending with the belief that the current prophet is not a prophet and that he is not teaching correct principles. That's how they did it, folks. That's all I'm saying. If that works for them, they have found peace. And that's great. You know, for me, I chose to walk away from the whole the whole kit and caboodle. Um, so it's very interesting. But I think the biggest thing is just being aware of what this is. And is there a way to find peace in your mind and to go on with your life? And I hope you will find that. Please look into some of the um, I will put links to Emma. I think her podcast is really fun on YouTube. and. Um, and I will also put a link to Kurt. Kurt is, um, he does a lot of research and he, I've asked him to be on my podcast and he says, no, he doesn't want to. He's kind of shy, but he said, please, you are free to use all of my material. One of the things I wanted to say in ending here, one example of cognitive, cognitive dissonance for me, and I tried to get this clip and I wasn't able to download it. I don't know if there's a block on some YouTubes that that make it impossible for you to download them, but I have not been able to download this. But my friend Martine, who you can find on Mormon Stories, if you will look up, just Google Martine Smith Mormon Stories, and it'll send you right over there to their podcast. It's a three-parter, but it's fabulous. And one of the things that she says was she was attending women's conference, like this one that Sherry Dew was. And she, they had like an open mic session and she stood up and she said, you know, I'm really conflicted because 
Martine and I both grew up with Spencer W. Kimball and Ezra Taft Benson, who told us that our role and our purpose in life was to be a stay-at-home mom, that we were to have as many children as physically possible, and that we were to stay home and nurture and raise them. And that was our job. And it would be our job for time and all eternity. And we accepted that. So Martine had enough guts. This is one of the things I love about her. She stood up to the microphone. And she said, you know, I'm really conflicted because I gave up my education and any idea that I would want to have a pro profession to be a stay at home mom. I wanted to have 12 children if I possibly could. Now, Martine's story is amazing. You'll have to watch it. But she said, but the women that have been br brought in to teach us and talk to us today at this women's conference are all professional women with careers, uh, small families and very high educations. So I'm conflicted. And Martine says they basically told her to sit down and be quiet. But that's my that's one of my things is we were taught this. What we saw is this. And that is being continued today. If you look at the women who are in positions of power in the church, small families, educations, and professions, and that is not what we were taught was okay. So if you wonder why there are only two or one or maybe three women speaking at these general conferences, it's because we have not had lifetimes to devote to our careers and our professions like all of these men have. Therefore, we have basically nothing to say but to repeat the words of these men. So anyway, I loved, I wanted to find Martine's clip to end with and I couldn't find it. So I will just leave you with her words. So I hope you enjoyed uh, today's broadcast. It was fun to do. There's so many um, great people that have done so much uh, um, research. And if you just, and in spite of what Sherry Dew says, this is not anti anything. What is being what is out there on the internet and on social media are historical facts. Unfortunately, they now have the Joseph Smith papers. They have history of the church. They have Brigham Young's discourse. They have so many of these things. And most of the information is information taken right out of those sources. So that's the conflict with trying to, for her to say, get your sources from designated um, authorized people. We're like, we did. It's from the Joseph Smith papers. This is what he said, or this is from the history of the church, page 347. This is what was documented. And that's the conflict that they're having is trying to dispute their own words. So thank you for joining me today. It's been a fun podcast to do. I'm looking forward to next week. Uh, might be a little crazy. We're snowbirds, so we're moving back to the heat. And I don't know where I'm going to be, but hopefully I'll be able to get a podcast put together because um, I love to just encourage women, especially, especially women of my demographics, just stand up, become visible, be yourself, um, find out who you are and show the world. Have a great day. Bye-bye.